Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I am Jenny Taylor. And today we are going to have a really important conversation with a great friend of KSL Radio, Jenny Howe. Jenny, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm actually feeling a lot better. I moved last week, and so if you would have asked me last week, I would have been an absolute mess, but I'm feeling much better today. Well, I love that you've rebounded from moving that quickly, because I think if I moved last week, I'd still say, call me back later. (laughs) Yeah, I'm there in some of my days, but I'm feeling a little better today. Oh, good. Well, thanks for joining us. First of all, we'd love to have you introduce yourself to our listeners. I know I and many of the other KSL radio listeners have heard you different segments on mental health, on mental well-being, on uh, all kinds of things under that umbrella. But can we get to know you a little bit? Would you just paint the picture of who in the world you are and maybe what's driven you into this professional field? But let's back up with kind of getting to know you a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I think, I don't know if if there's a professional in the field who doesn't get into the work that we do without having some kind of history or baggage, you know, I think a lot of us go into this field because we've got stuff of our own that we're really curious about. At least I hope so. You know, I think that makes us more empathic. But in my life, that's certainly true. I uh, grew up in San Diego, California. My parents were originally from Utah. And my dad grew up in really intense poverty, a lot of trauma in his childhood. And, And because of that, had a lot of addiction. And so he did not get sober until I was almost seven years old. And as a result, I was the oldest. My parents had me very young. I was witness to a lot in my young years. And I think it developed a lot of perfectionism in me, a lot of codependency, a lot of me thinking I could control other people with my behaviors. You know, if I was good enough, then everyone else would be good enough. So naturally I became a therapist, right? I made a career out of codependency. Yeah. But I, I really saw and bore witness to my dad change his entire life. So he was, you know, I I could go into lots of stories about the trauma of the things that I witnessed as a child, but the most impactful part of what I witnessed as a child was my dad um, go into recovery when I was seven years old. And he uh, entered a 30-day program. I remember visiting him in this program. I remember drinking little Apple Martinelli's in those old glass bottles that they used to sell them in. And he got sober and he did the work. And he still does the work. He's been sober for, let's see, how old am I? He's been sober 35 years. Wow. Um, he's been sober the whole time. The entire time. He's what never relapsed, which is miraculous. What an incredible journey. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that doesn't mean it was easy. Sure. It's certainly, he had a lot of work to do on himself. You know, getting sober is the first step of any recovery program. But it, it changed my life. It changed the course of my life. It created generational change. And I wanted to do that for other people. I wanted other people to be able to witness that for themselves and their families. And so, you know, it would be a miss for me saying this is just something I wanted to do because I, I was born into it, literally, and had this example in my life and wanted to create that again. So I became, I was going to be a doctor. I remember the day I came home and told my parents, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to be a psychologist instead. And I, you know, they were okay with that, but I think they were kind of a little bit disappointed if I'm being honest, you know, the doctor thing sounded great, but they knew me and they knew that this was my path and I've just never turned back. It's definitely my life's work. 
I always tell people it's the thing I'm good at. I'm not great at my own personal relationships, but I'm great at helping other people with theirs. So, you know, I, I think that this is something that I was meant to do. So I love um, that honesty and vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have so many friends that will come to me for advice or relationship yeah. stuff. And they tell me all the time, you have such great advice. You're so great. But then, like, I struggle so hard with the relationships with my children oh, yeah. and really being able to have the kind of loving, connected relationship that I really want to create. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, like, it's a process, right? It's hard. And, and it's relationships are difficult because they involve other people that have to want the same type of that thing. You can't control, even <laughs> if you think you want yep. to. Yeah, or, exactly right. Yeah. So tell my us. My partner said to me last week, he said, Jenny, I think everything's great in our relationship as long as I'm doing what you tell me to do. And I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> That's actually true. Isn't that when the world works so well if you just all do what I want you to do? You know, yeah, I, I have exactly. a great book for you guys. <laughs> what is it? It's called yeah. Conscious Loving. Have you heard about no. him? It's oh. Gay Hendrickson. Hendricks? Okay. Gay Hendricks. He's, a, I believe, a psychologist. Um and it comes from years of his therapy. And there's a book called mm. Conscious Living, which is an individual guide to understanding yourself. Okay. And Conscious mm-hmm. Loving is about being in a relationship. And then there's Conscious Loving Ever After. Oh. Anyway, I'm in the middle mm. of all of them. I um, actually is dating someone that at, said, I want to create this in my life. Interesting. Wow. And wow. it's a very deliberate mindset. Yes, which is consciously conscious creating. Living. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we yeah. should start a book club. It's, yeah, well, actually, I've been yeah, thinking I'll about be that. <gasps> yes, I've been actually resilient. The book, the book club, club edition. Yeah. Stay and, tuned, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here first on KSL News Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking um, news. I, I I'm actually really excited about this. This is really something you, you know. I want you to do this, and then you can lead our book club because I would love to have somebody that has some tools and ideas to be yeah. able to to be able to to. Where you get a group together. I, I thought about this the other day um, while I was reading the book. I thought, you know, it'd be great if you, like, got together with a whole bunch of women. Like, in the singles mm-hmm. world, there's women are like, why am I single? Why Why is this? Why is that? Why do I meet all the wrong people? And it's really not yeah. about meeting the wrong people, but it's really about discovering what who you are and falling in love with you. Mm-hmm. And that's falling in love with the dark side, the shadow sides as well, and accepting all of who you are yeah. as a person. And so what would be cool is that you read the book and two weeks later you go and do an activity and right. then you come mm-hmm. back and, and when you come back the third time, the third discussion is this was my interaction with you and this is how I'd like to create a more connected experience with you. And so that yeah. you're practicing these tools so that you can then take them into your personal life. So you yeah. do it with people that choose it. in. So anyway, it's a great book. That was a side note, yeah, but a total um, side note, but a very applicable. I love, yeah. I love yeah. Jenny that you've shared with us some of your childhood mm-hmm. experiences and how they've shaped your life as an adult. They've shaped your profession. Um, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about kind of your early years in this profession? What kind of mm-hmm. education, academic background did you have, and then what what how did you jump into this world of therapy and psychology? What did that look like, and what has it looked like in your professional career? Yeah, I decided to be baptized by fire because that's how I do things. And I began my career working for juvenile justice, um, youth corrections in a secure care facility, working with kids who had committed felonies. So sex offenders, uh, 
gang members, hardcore gang members, murderers, oh, uh, the wow. highest level of, of crimes. I, I began that job when I was 20. Oh my and gosh. so, and in Utah, the juvenile justice system serves children until they are 21. So there was literally people there that were older than me <laughs> sometimes oh when I began my career. Um, and I worked with young men and I just decided I wanted to dive right in. And I had just graduated in psychology with my bachelor's. Um, and this was a way for me to get my foot in the door. And then I uh, eventually went and got my master's at Utah State just a couple of years later. And so I currently have a master's degree in psychology. I'm licensed as a clinical mental health counselor. Um, and I do a lot of mental health consulting globally as well. But the first four years of my career shaped my entire career in such a positive way. I was able to, to really understand family systems and how deeply we're affected by what we surround ourselves with and how every human being has the capacity. And you just mentioned the shadows and the darkness, right? Every human being has the capacity for both, period. And we as clinicians or just people who support people, humanity, have a responsibility to see both parts of people. And because I was able to witness that uh, the first four years of my career, it was incredibly shaping and how I viewed people and their stories and their darkness and their light and their capacity for light, even if they had only shown darkness in their life thus far. And that just, you know, it kind of made me an internal optimist about people. Again, the side effect of that is it also did so in relationships, which created some problems for me repeatedly. However, I will stand firm in the belief that my value is at the end of the day that every human being has worth and value and lightness and and the way that we discover that is through our darkness and i was given the gift of doing that early in my career which then shaped the rest of my career oh i love um, that yeah yeah I, you, you know, know I, I, I don't think we really talk about like societally we, we talk about things like setting big goals achieving great things we go on Instagram, social media, it's all the positive, 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 but we really don't talk about like, what's our shadow side? What's our dark personality? Right. What, what, what is our, the opposite of all of the goodness? Like I'm a driver, I'm right. incredibly motivated, but my dark side is that I can be short, short, stern, to the point, direct, and it can make mm-hmm. people feel not happy to be around me. And when mm-hmm. I'm intense, nobody wants to be around me. Or anxious, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and so it's and it's coming to the point where you can acknowledge that dark side and be really aware of it, but also be Mm -hmm. able to start to love yourself and embrace yourself for for all of who you are. That's what I've been on a journey for the last year working on. Yeah, I'm not there yet. Well, it is a journey. Yeah, I, the dark side. Yeah, I don't know who who's actually there. Yeah. Who's arrived? Let us know what's it look like on the other side, because the rest of us are still on the journey. Yeah. Hey, let's, on it. Yeah. let's take a quick break so that we can really dive in in the next segment to what you've touched on this darkness leading to discovering the light, this journey, mm-hmm. um, and and how we as members of society can be better within ourselves and also helping our fellow men. So we'll be right back. Great. we're back. Jenny, right before the break, you said something about your core value being that you believe every human being has this capacity for light. 
and that yes. that light is often discovered through the darkness. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I think that's a really profound, yeah. rather than not just acknowledging the darkness, but that the darkness might be the gateway to the light. Tell us a little bit more about that and what you've, what you've thought about and seen in your profession. Yeah, you know, I, I want to give a little bit of credit to Brene Brown, right? All roads oh, lead to Brene Brown in my we, life. <laughs> yes, we love Brene Brown. I'm a big fan. Work in the research Part of, she's done yeah. on vulnerability and darkness is huge in this area. Oh, huge. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to use an example of anxiety, which is something I, as a way, as a gateway for kind of maybe making this understandable or relatable to people. But oftentimes when we feel anxiety in our lives, if we're an anxious person, you know, society or even like our body system, our neurology tells us to lean into the avoidance of that. Oh, that thing is scary. I need to back away from that in order to be safe, right? I hate spiders, so I'm going to have my boyfriend kill the spiders. I don't like public speaking, so I'm going to get a career where I have to sit behind a computer, right? We lean into the avoidance of whatever it is that's making us anxious as a way to create safety. And the actual work of treating anxiety is something that we call exposure response prevention therapy, which is this idea of leaning into the fear in order to develop your safety. And it's really rooted in science. I can take this turn and do a whole bunch of neuroscience junk for you right now. I won't bore you with that, but I want you to know that this is grounded in science. However, in order to really heal from anxiety, we have to be willing to tell our brain that the thing that we're afraid of, that darkness, that thing that we're scared of is actually not a threat. And the only way we teach our brain that it's not a threat is by doing it, is by dipping our feet into the pool of whatever it is we're afraid of and being willing to develop a tolerance to it. So we embrace fear. I'm not saying you have to like jump into the deep end, right? And, And immerse yourself into a bathtub of spiders or anything like that. But if you begin to move into a space where you can enter a room with a spider and not run away from the room and just begin to tolerate that fear, over time, your brain, your neurology is going to tell you that, hey, this thing, you can tolerate it. You may not like it. It may not be your favorite thing in the world to do, but it's something you can handle. And through that experience, we gain confidence. That is really profound. So let's give an example like say I have a child who is having a lot of fear going to bed at night and and it's not I don't understand why this child can't sleep but the anxiety is high and it builds starting in the morning or starting in the evening and this child just can't rest what can I do to help that child process that emotion wonderful question this will be a great example actually Society tells us and our instincts tell us in that moment to try to create safety. Okay, tell me what you're afraid of and how can we make that bad thing go away? What science tells us and what I know to be true and and this whole concept of leaning into the darkness or to the anxiety is in that moment when your child's afraid, I would have them really describe in detail the worst case scenario. So let's say your child is afraid of monsters under the bed. Instead of just immediately trying to fix that by, like, making some monster spray and telling them the monsters aren't real, instead, have them talk about that truth. Tell me about this monster. What would this monster do to you if it was alive? What do you think would happen? How would that feel in your body? Get them to really take that emotion, that fear that they're living and breathing inside of their body, and pull it out of them. Get them to describe it. The whole art of verbal processing is really cathartic for this. 
let them describe that fear and teach them through the description of that, that, man, that does sound very scary. I could see why you're scared of that. So if these monsters are real, how can you prepare yourself for that? And then teach them the resiliency, right? The whole point of this podcast, teach them some resiliency and confidence by helping them access tools, by teaching them tools as to how to handle this worst case scenario. Validate it by making it real. It's so invalidating when somebody tells us that our hard feelings aren't real, right? I don't think there's anything worse in the world. But yet when our children or people we love come to us with hard feelings and we immediately try to fix them, that's the most invalidating thing we do. It doesn't teach them anything. They gain nothing from that experience. They don't gain confidence. They don't gain self-esteem. They don't gain resilience, right? We have I appreciate you saying that. that. I, I need to like put that on record and mm-hmm. remind myself 500 times <laughs> a day. Same. Because as a type A personality, I, I see you shaking your head over there, Jenny. Oh, yeah. I I tend to want to fix things and then yeah. I don't mean to be invalidating, but I can see it after I've already done the damage. That yeah. is hard. Yeah. It's hard to, oh, yeah. to learn how to to kind of step back and not want to especially when it's our children, I think. That's the Can worst. I ask a question, Jenny? I love yeah. what you're saying. Yes. I'm taking copious notes as a mother going, oh my gosh, I got to learn this. I love yeah. the idea of leaning into the fear or leaning into the anxiety. Yeah. I happen to be a worst case scenario-ist, if that's a uh-huh. thing. And some people think it's kind of doomsday. But for me, it's actually helpful because if I can think through the I worst bet. case scenario and if I can survive the worst case scenario... Well, then probably what's going to happen isn't going to be as bad as that. So I'll be okay. Here's a question, though. What if it's not so much a fear of a monster or a spider or public speaking? Tell me the role that a trauma or a tragedy in a person's background plays into this lean-in theory. You know, whether they faced a tragic loss or they've witnessed something. I mean, it sounds like your first four years, you were interacting with young people who had seen or done or been a part of some pretty horrible, tragic things I can think of my children. They lost their father in a very sudden public way. Mm-hmm. You know, he was killed overseas and then our world flipped upside down. Or Michelle, they watched their mm-hmm. father dying over the course of 22 months battling cancer. Was it hard on my grandson? Mm-hmm. He's having and, sleep and he's, issues and now. Little, and actually, child. having this conversation makes me think maybe his sleep issues are related to the fact that every morning he gets up, it's an affront to the fact that he lost his grandpa. Maybe that's why he yeah. doesn't want to go to bed. Maybe it has nothing to yeah. do with it at all. But maybe. And and so can you tell us what, rather than just the fear of a thing or an action you have to do or face, where does mm-hmm. tragedy or trauma play into this same concept of stop trying to avoid it because that's really not going to do any of us any good? Can we talk about that a little yeah. bit? Absolutely. I'm really glad you asked that question. And my answer is going to be, we do the same thing. Any therapist that is trained in work of PTSD or trauma really knows that the only pathway through um, working through that is by living in it. And most of the time when people come to therapy, they have an expectation that therapy is going to make them feel better. And I'm here to tell you that it never does. Not in the beginning. (laughs) It shouldn't. If you're doing the work, you should not be feeling good, not in the beginning, especially dealing with trauma or tragedy, because a lot of the stuff that we bring to the world, a lot of the things, a lot of the mental health symptoms that we see, right, is all a mask of avoidance of actually dealing with the stuff that's causing it. So can I give you an example? I had a client today in session who um, was talking about these like obsessive compulsive symptoms he was experiencing. He was dealing with some COVID stuff. He's like, oh, I'm just obsessing about this. 
And I said, okay, I hear that, you know, but we've been doing some work for a long time. I'm wondering if this is actually about this thing in your life. And, you know, for the last three weeks in session, you haven't been willing to talk about what could happen if this relationship ended. You just, you haven't even been willing to talk about that tragedy and what's happening in your life. And I don't think, you know, I don't even think focusing on these obsessive compulsive symptoms of COVID stuff is going to be helpful for you unless you're willing to address what's actually causing you to feel pain right now. And so with our children, with ourselves, with our loved ones, moving through the pain, talking about the pain, trauma work is always talking about the pain getting your body to actually feel the pain. People that have experienced repeated trauma or complex trauma or tragedies in their life, they learn really quickly how to disassociate from their body signals and not experience the pain. They put on masks, they overwork themselves, they overwork out, they they eat, they numb, they addict, right? Because all of those things are ways that we mask actually feeling the pain. And until we're willing to feel it, until we're willing to talk about the monster under the bed or the tragedy that happens, in a way that actually allows our body to feel it, we're never going to move through it. And so, unfortunately, the work is the same, regardless of, of the impetus, whether it's tragedy, trauma, or, you know, a monster under your bed. We have to be willing to feel the pain in our body as we talk about it in order to be able to heal from it and understand that we can tolerate it and live our life. So how do you get someone, whether old or young, because I can think of children, Mm -hmm. I can think of adults, that I can tell they're wearing a mask or they're avoiding or they've disconnected their body from the feelings of the emotions and they're doing fine on the surface. What, how, how and when, how do you open that conversation? Is it, is it right to push versus when does it become prying I, I guess, what do we do with that? I think all of us are wearing masks to a certain degree, and I don't just mean a COVID mask, but... Yeah, um, the social mask. The social mask, and it might be yeah. our own children, it might be our friends, it might be someone in our relationships where we can tell there's more to the story under the surface. Maybe there's a monster under the proverbial bed. How do we start right. those conversations? Do you have certain tips or... Obviously, not all of us are going to be trained professionals, but what can we do maybe in our homes and in our own relationships to make it a more comfortable place to talk about the monsters under the bed when everybody pretends there's no monsters under the bed? Right. Great question. But I want to, there's a therapist in me that's wanting to say something to you right now. Are you okay with that? Please. Yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> okay. The first question or the first part of that was really interesting. Because the way you asked the question, and then I think you reframed it well, but the way you began the question is the biggest mistake people make. So you said, how can I get someone else to do this? Sure. Realizing that I can't. You can't do anything for somebody else. You can't ever force an emotional experience for someone else, even as a therapist. That's the hardest lesson I've had to learn as a codependent. I can't make people do the therapy. I just can't, right? But to the reframe of that question, what we can do is create a safe space for people where they know that their vulnerability is going to be acknowledged and witnessed, okay? And how we do that in our home is by doing it ourselves. Social modeling theory 101. If we want to create a space for our children where they feel comfortable talking to us about their darkness, we've got to talk about our own with them. And this starts from a young age. I remember my dad making fun of me when I was raising my daughter just 
for, for a side note, I have a daughter who's 19 and is in college in Massachusetts, way too far away from me. Um, and I have a son who is 15 with significant special needs. He's nonverbal um, and is affectionate and adorable, but also very difficult for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I divorced for about 10 years. So I've been through a lot of this darkness in my own personal life with my own family and my own children. When my daughter was young, I made a promise to myself that I was always going to bear witness to this with her. And one time I was at my parents' house, we were having dinner together, and she was throwing a tantrum. She was like two years old. I don't remember why. And I sat down on the floor with her, and I said, here, I hear you. I hear that this is something you want to do right now. Talk, talk to me about why. Tell me why you want to throw this fit. You know, rather than just going straight to the discipline, I went to the acknowledgement of the feeling behind the discipline. And she talked about it. We had a conversation. She moved through it, and we went back to the table. And my dad was like, is there ever going to be a time that you don't just, like, psychologize her? <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't think so. I think this is how I want to raise her. And I haven't done that perfectly. There have been many failures, especially raising a teenage daughter on my own, that I definitely experienced. But an abundance of appreciation for my own mistakes and my own recognition of my darkness with her is what has created the space for her to fail in front of me. And that, to me, is intimacy, right? And so if we want to create a space with our children and our loved ones where they take off those masks, we have to take off our own. And that is really hard to do, yeah. especially when we think as parents our job is to protect our kids, right? I'm going to protect my daughter from all the feelings I'm having about the divorce or the feelings I'm having about dating or the feelings I'm having about raising her alone. Or I'm going to let her know at an age-appropriate level what is happening. You know, when I come home from work and I'm slamming covers and she thinks that that's about her, rather than just allowing that to be unspoken to say, gosh, you know, this is what happened today. I got this text message and I didn't handle it well. You know, I totally screwed this up. And I'm worried that I'm failing you because I worked until 630 rather than was here when you got you know, home from school today. And I had those open conversations with her. And I think that is the safety that we can provide our children and our loved ones in our life that allows them the space to not feel like they have to perfect anything. My daughter knew I wasn't perfect. I am not perfect. And I think because of that, she was also free to not be perfect in front of me. That is profound and great advice. So here's another question. You can tell I've got yeah. seven, seven kids living in my home. I'm like, hmm, tell me this, tell me this, tell me this. And, you know, I'm a hot mess most of the time myself anyway, so half of it's good, for me. Good, good. So people yeah. will say things. Um, we've all flown on an airplane in this room, and if the yeah. oxygen mask were to come down, we know to put it on ourselves before we put it on the right. small child next to us, and that makes biological sense because if I don't breathe, I'm right. going to die, and I can't help my child breathe. But I have found in my experience, because of the different personalities, either between me and my children or my children to mm -hmm. another one of my children or to their mm -hmm. friends or their cousins or someone else that they know or saw in a movie, sometimes what mm -hmm. acts as an oxygen mask to one person suffocates oh, yeah. the other person. So can we talk about oh, that yeah. a little bit and giving ourselves and others the freedom to breathe differently? Because what helps me, you know, I'm thinking of this with my own daughter and certain mm -hmm. dynamics in our home, certain things I do that I feel like might be expressive and I'm trying to create this open dialogue environment, it's like just making her want to run the opposite direction and be nothing like me because <laughs> it's shutting it the other way. 
And I think I'm probably not the only one that runs Mm -hmm. into that. And so I appreciate what you've said that we need to model and open ourselves up and be real and be vulnerable. But let's talk a little bit about what if something helps me face the struggles of life and I'm trying to help my children or, or my loved ones do the same thing, but doesn't work for them. There's no one size fits all. Where do we put the space in our minds or in our relationships to have differing approaches to dealing with it, whatever it is in our situations? Right. You know, I think that's a great question. And I'll give you an example. But first, I want to address the fact that when we're modeling something, we should not be modeling it with the intent of creating that exact same response in our loved one. So when I'm talking about my day, all I'm wanting to model is the fact that I'm being vulnerable, which then creates the space for that person to be vulnerable in their way. Again, my motive is not to fix my daughter. My motive is to come to her as real and authentic as I can be, which then creates that space for her. So I'm not looking for this outcome. I'm looking for the experience. Okay. And I think that helps us manage what I think you're asking A lot of times, if we're not going into these conversations like, okay, I'm really trying to get this out of my daughter, I'm really trying to get her to kind of see this perspective, or I'm really trying to get her to handle this situation, I know we all have those thoughts, right? But if we go into these conversations or experiences with that outcome-oriented mindset, we're going to lose the whole space for vulnerability. So I think that's key. But I also think, to to give you an example, I'm going to use my daughter. My daughter and I could not be more different could not be more different. I don't even know how she came out of me because the way that she receives love, the way that she shows love is the epitome of opposite of me (laughs) in every way. I am a therapist. I am a talker. I want to verbalize everything. I want to have people acknowledge feelings. And this is like my lifeblood, right? She would rather die than do any of that. She feels completely offended if I ask a question about her emotions, because to her and her core value of independence, that makes her feel like I don't trust her. That is offensive to her. For me, that's the epitome of showing love. If somebody said, hey, how was your day? I'm like, oh, thank you for acknowledging that. It was really rough. You know, like that's really huge for me. For my daughter, that is offensive truly offensive for her because she wants to be trusted to know that she can manage her life. That is her core value. So I think when we identify in the people that we love, what their core values are, and we meet them where their core values are, we then can show love in the way that meets their needs. So for example, with my daughter being in Massachusetts, far away, my personality is like, I would love to talk to you every day. I would love to. I want to talk to you on the phone every day. Not in like a hypervigilant helicoptery way, but just because it makes me feel like bonded to her. I miss her. She needs to know that I trust her living far away from me. And so I learned to back off and she'll reach out to me. Hey, mom, I needed this or I have this question. And when she started the conversation, I'll say something like, hey, do you want to chat today? And she'll say, oh, yeah, I've got time. Sure. And then we'll talk and it's completely her choice and she doesn't feel like I'm intruding. Right. But there are some people who, if their moms didn't reach out to them and they were at school across the country, that would be like, they would feel abandoned. So we have to acknowledge To the point of trauma. Some people would be abandoned to the- That would be me. Yeah, yeah. I would feel abandoned to the point of trauma. No joke. And it's so- If my mom didn't do that. It's so difficult. And I just want to say to Ginny, as a mom, you have seven kids. I have four. They are all so different. They're so different. It is hard 
it's easy to talk about these things in examples, but it is difficult yeah. sometimes to understand the motivation or the needs of the individual child. Sometimes it's hard to, to uncover what exactly that is. And I think it changes as they age and go yeah. through different um, stages of their own development. But I love... I think I always talk about T-shirts we need to make from great things people yeah. say on this show. I'm going to have a whole wardrobe. I love yeah. what you said that we can't be focused on the outcome. If everything right. I'm doing is because I'm expecting to, that that my action A will create outcome B in my child or my friend or my society, I will always feel frustrated and like I've failed. Yes. But if I can focus on the experience or the environment and then let the outcome be what the outcome naturally is – that's so freeing. Yeah. And, and again, not trying to fix everything, but just let's try to face things one at a time. But I, I do love that. Yeah. I love what you're saying. And I do, I'll admit, in this moment, I feel overwhelmed to say, okay, that's seven little people that I've got to try to, yeah. what's your core value? What's your core value? Do I have to read through? And, and again, I think sometimes yeah. we overthink it mm-hmm. because we're worried that we're not paying enough attention. So then we do become hypervigilant helicopters, which of course does no good. But <laughs> I do, I do, think I do logic, appreciate what you said. Yeah, I do, I do think logic and thinking about things is important. But I also feel like our approach needs to come from our heart. Like we need to take a yeah. breath and take a step back and it's back make, to that concept of the grace, right? And and, and kind of approach our kids. I did that the other day with my daughter. I took her out to dinner, and we've been. I, I've been really wanting to have a conversation that needed to have happen, and I sat there and I really just felt in my heart all this love that I have for my daughter, and I was able to make a few brief sentences that she was able to actually hear. Mm. At one point, she kind of interrupted me and said, it's okay. And I said, no, I need you to hear me. And what I'm doing is apologizing to you for where I have not met your needs. And Mm. she was able to really listen and hear it. And, you know, sometimes I think that we get in our heads and we try to approach things and connect with our kids, especially on a head level. But really, we need to come at it from our hearts. You know, it, I agree. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. I think what I'm hearing both of you say is that we just need to trust ourselves as women, as mothers, as parents, as partners to to have the stuff and the knowledge already in us to be able to do the thing. Right. I think, you know, as I heard you say, I have seven bodies and the thought of, you know, having all their core values, you know, memorized is, is really hard. But my response to that would have been in that moment to say, you already know, you already know, you know, you don't need to perfect it. You already know your instincts already know what that child values. Yeah. And just allowing yourself to trust that I think is really the witness to that. Just like you did in that experience with your daughter, right? right? You allowed yourself to trust what you were feeling in that moment rather than overthinking it. Yeah, absolutely. We need to take another break. When we come back, We have had some really powerful guests on our show recently have shared Mm -hmm. some really uh, personal insights with their battles with massive depression and um, suicidal ideation and attempt. And I, I would really like to kind of explore like how we can support those that are suffering with this kind of level depression and talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about suicide itself. Let's mm-hmm. let's have that discussion when we come back.
back with Jenny Howe. Jenny, before we left the break, we've covered a lot of great things. You've had amazing insight. It's been a lot of fun to have this conversation with you. I um, mentioned before we went to break that we've we've had a lot of people come on our show recently, kind of a, a cluster of listeners um, who have contacted the show one way or the other, and and they shared their stories of suicide with us, which is so powerful. And and their process, they had a suicide attempt, and 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 some of them several, and they're still here with us. And and they shared some insight with us into that. As a therapist, I imagine you deal with this a lot in your practice. Yeah, suicidal ideation is common and it's a very common feature of a major depressive disorder um, especially the episodic kind and so it's something that I hear about and see you know in in Utah specifically to address it in Utah suicide is the number one cause of death in in adolescent males and so it is a real issue that we deal with every single day in our state and so certainly I see it in our practice but there are some important risk factors here that I think are valuable to talk about Um, And this isn't to diminish the intensity of the depression that people are feeling, but often depression itself isn't a risk factor for suicide. And I know that may sound silly, but depression is, especially for adults and, and women suffering with depression, depression is episodic. It's something where people feel really, really low. It usually doesn't Day for a long period of time. Sometimes it does in really severe cases. I don't want to under-dramatize that. But it is something that a lot of people experience. It's really common, unfortunately. For people who are suicidal, a couple of the risk factors that I think parents or people should be aware of, especially with their adolescent males, is number one, a track record of impulsivity. So if you have a kid who is feeling depressed, that also has exhibited impulsivity, like maybe some ADHD type of symptoms in their life, that really ups the ante in terms of their risk for completion of suicide. A second risk factor that I think is valuable is, especially in our state, is accessibility to weapons. So the two things that we do as clinicians and when we're doing an assessment of somebody with depression that has suicidal ideation is look for these two things. Does this person also have a history of impulsivity? And does this person also have an accessible weapon? And those two things really create kind of the perfect storm for completion of suicide. Now, as a clinician, suicidal ideation is a feature of depression. So I hear about that all the time. But in terms of actually working with people who are actively suicidal, those are the two risk factors that I'm really paying attention to. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's a lot to take it in is. as a mom. You know, I have four kids. I do have a son who who has struggled on and off with different things. And I, I hear you say those things. And I just, I, I'm having yeah. a moment of a little bit of anxiety and panic. I'm not going to lie. Sure. Um, sure. It, it's definitely something I've considered and have worried about for years with this boy. Um, but. Right. But to to just hear you say that those are the biggest risk factor, it just really like brings it home once again that those feelings mm-hmm. that I worry about are probably not completely unfounded. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about suicide and that process. Like one of our guests came, who was on talked about that he was just 
rehearsing in his mind from a young age that he everyone would be better off the world would be better off his family would be better off without him and it was a negative rehearsal and of course that's a self-fulfilling prophecy you know and he's working through that now and he has tools that he shared with us and and strategies to help him combat that and it's better now than it used to be but is that pretty common is that a is that something that happens often you know without knowing his whole story i would say yes and no the work that i do and the specialty that i have in terms of treating anxiety and ocd really leads me to this basis of understanding that our thoughts are just thoughts and sometimes we give our thoughts so much more power than they deserve Right. If we were to really look at our brain and the 40,000 thoughts we have a day, there are so many of them that are worth trashing, you know. And so the thoughts that we give energy to or power to can become very meaningful in our life. So I'm hearing you say that he was really rehearsal oriented about the specific thought of suicidality or the hopelessness surrounding his, you know, worth in life. And that became his truth or his narrative. And I certainly believe that people with suicide or any mental health issue, that the the narratives we create can be very meaningful in what we create in our life. So, yes. Um, On the other hand, I do know that most of the time when, when people commit suicide or have a completed suicide, that it's a very impulsive decision. So that doesn't that doesn't mean that they haven't planned it or rehearsed it like this young man did. It just means that. They have probably thought about it a lot, and they have a plan for it. But in that moment, they saw no other way out of what they were experiencing. And so a lot of the tools and strategies that we have to combat depression don't help that so much. And so you see this campaign all over the state of Utah now, right? Like, I've seen billboards with, like, people sitting around and talking on on the the trailer bed of a truck – And they're saying, this is suicide prevention. And I love that campaign because offering support to people all the time is what's really going to help create that base where when the impulsivity kicks in, they're going to remember that they have support all the time, not just in these moments of crisis. Right. We need Mm -hmm. to provide that base for them all the time and have acceptable support for people all the time. I feel what's scary about hearing you say that is we, we Mm -hmm. live in a social media world now and people are disconnected more than ever. Now we -hmm. think that these things are drawing us closer together. I can be in touch with people that I don't ever see in my life and never really have a conversation with, have some kind of idea of what's going on. These are kids that I'm went to high school with that out in California, but we don't have any connection, but we have this idea that there's connection, right? We have this world that we're raising these kids in where we pretend that we have connection, but we're not really taking the time to sit on the back of the truck, be connected yeah. in person to make time for one another. And that's right. that's kind of a scary thing. Like if if that really is prevention then we've got to get off of our phones. We've got to get back. off of yeah. social media. And we need to circle back to actually like picking up the phone and saying, hey, come meet me. Let's go get a drink. Let's go mm-hmm. walk through the park. park. Or whatever. Let's go take yeah. a, a hike. You know, I think that's awesome advice and it's great advice. And I, I know it's true. And also it's kind of frightening because we don't live in the environment, especially for these young kids where that is really actually going on or happening. Yeah, I think 
intimacy and connection is something that we can create electronically, but we have to teach our children how to do it. I think there's a lot lost in translation, right, to your point. Right. And creating connection with people is all about intention. I do think it's possible to create intentional and meaningful connection with our children over social media or texting. You know, so that's just how they communicate. So I do think there's a way to do that. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it, again, goes back to this experience versus outcome orientation. Am I going to take my daughter to dinner because I have a specific goal in mind, or am I going to take my daughter to dinner because I have this intent to be intimate and connect and vulnerable, right? In order to intimately connect with someone, we have to also be vulnerable. And I think, again, that can happen over social media. It's not ideal. It can happen. It's not something that's completely, you know, we're not going to be ruined because of it. But I do think that it's about the intention. You know, I think my sister will mind me sharing. My sister recently had an incident where she was feeling suicidal. And um, it was it happened in the middle of the night. And it was pretty impulsive. And she ended up in the hospital. She got the help that she needed. Um, but one of the things she said in the family session after was, you know, like, you guys will check in on me, but nobody really asks. Nobody really asks me anything. You know, it's like, hey, how are you doing? And you kind of just see that and you accept it for what it is rather than asking the hard stuff, you know. And that was hard to hear because she was right. Here I am, a therapist. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But I, I think we can connect. We just have to be willing to invest in the intention of it, you know? I love that word, the intention, the conscious, the deliberate. It's, it's all that same concept. Yeah. And I wish we could talk with you for days and <laughs> days and days, but I know our time is running short. Jenny, we always ask our guests to tell us what is resilience? What does it look like to you in this context of this greater conversation we've had about parenting and mental illness and suicide and everything? Can you conceptualize resilience for us and what we individually can maybe be a little more mindful or conscious of as we're trying to build that resilience in ourselves? My definition of resilience is gentleness in our recovery from failure. I think resilience is really shown in our weaknesses and in our failures and in our mistakes and how well we get up from that and allow ourselves the grace of beginning again. That is resilience to me. Resilience is not found in easy roads or success. It's super easy to be successful, you know, but it's really hard to make a mistake. And it's really hard to fail. And it's really hard to screw up as a parent. And it's really hard to get divorced. And the gentleness that we give ourselves through the recovery process of that, to me, is resilience. Oh, I love wow. that. That is profound and awesome. I'm, I'm adopting it. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thank do. you for joining us. Jenny, can we find you? Are you on social media? Do you post things that are uplifting and informative that maybe our listeners can learn more about you and, and some of these things you teach? I know you're often on KSL News Radio. Is there other ways we can reach out to you or your, your brilliance? Uh, yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. Hopefully I'm just honest. That's my goal. But yeah, I have a website, um, and that's the easiest way to access me. There's an email on there, and feel okay. free to shoot me an email. I do have social media, but I am not great at it. Yeah. Okay, we will share that with our listeners. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as Michelle and I have. I know all of us, whether we are parents or young or old or whatever stage and phase of life we're in, we all love people who 
might be struggling or maybe we're the person that is struggling and we all can use that improvement in our relationships and our deliberate nature of connection and intimacy and vulnerability. I know this will be an episode I think about for a very long time. So Jenny, thank you for joining us. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you've subscribed to the podcast to never mix an episode any week. And if you have a minute, go ahead and give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. It helps us learn how we can improve the show and also helps get the show out there. And remember, for those of you listening, if you or someone you know has a real story, and you probably do about the real life you've lived, we'd love to have you share it with us and our listeners. You can find us by emailing rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Whatever you do today, remember, be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Have a great day.